Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. Well, good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner. And today we have a special guest with us today, John Ostenson. I should ask if I'm pronouncing your name correctly, John. Is that the right way to say your last name? It gets pronounced that way quite often, but usually we pronounce like Austin, Texas. Oh, Ostenson. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for the correction. So we're joining, we're having John join us today because we have a very interesting conversation for you. Today we're talking about non-food franchising. So first, at the top of this conversation, I'm going to ask you if you have ever considered franchising or specifically non-food franchising, I would like you to drop a comment in the chat of the live stream that you're listening to, whether on Facebook or LinkedIn or YouTube or even on Twitter. We would love to hear your thoughts and your questions about franchising because we're talking with one of the experts today and it is going to be a great opportunity to get your questions answered so that you can move forward if this is something that you are interested in. So John, before I give your full bio and and talk about what exactly we're going to be discussing in the show, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. No, excited to be here and looking forward to our discussion. Awesome. Awesome. Well, today we are talking about non-food franchising and specifically the pros and cons, the highs and lows, why you might want to do this, why if you're a real estate investor, you might be interested in non-food franchising and why in the world non-food franchising versus food franchising and why you should possibly be thinking about this space instead of just starting a business from scratch. So that's what we're talking about today. And let me give just a little bit of background about John because I'm, I'm going to get your whole story, John, from you in just a few minutes. But what we want to let our audience and our listeners know is that you've really had a, an experience in this space already and you know what you're talking about. So John was a top 1% franchise consultant nationally. He leads Franbridge Consulting as the CEO and he also draws on his experience as a former Inc. 500 franchise president and multi-brand franchisee in serving his clients. He's the author of the best-selling book, Non-Food Franchising, and is a frequent contributor on franchising publications such as Forbes, Bloomberg, and the Franchise Journal. So again, thank you for being with us this morning. Absolutely. All right, Bruce, let's hear your thoughts as we jump into this conversation, and then let's get your backstory, John, once we're finished with that. Yeah, so the first thing I want uh, our listeners to understand is this is just another attempt of, of Rachel and I to bring you some of the top people in their particular industry so that you have access to the information so that you can look for a cash flowing uh, business or investment. And this would be one of those things. There's a lot of pros and cons of franchises. I've had a lot of experience in, in the, as a franchisee in two different ex, um, investments. And I've also been married to somebody for 37 years that actually started uh, the business development for um, uh, the UPS store, which so I know it from the franchisor's side too. And there is a lot of opportunities in franchises. To me, I, I understand uh, staying away from um, food franchises, although they can be very, very profitable. And the other thing I hope John will touch on today is 
I also would like to stay away from my experience, finding out my, my experiences from franchises that have a lot of inventory. And um, because that also brings in an, another factor that's very, very difficult to manage. And then, John, I hope we, we're going to talk a little bit about um, um, whether you can be a absentee owner in these situations. And we can talk about the pros and cons of that. So thanks for being here today, John. And, uh, and everybody that's listening, please pay co- close attention because this could be a huge opportunity for you. So, John, as we jump into what food non-food franchising is all about, can you tell us your backstory? How did you get into franchising and where did you go in the franchising and franchisee space? Absolutely. No, you know, like so many of your listeners had a background in the corporate world, had a really good run over a number of years, but had that entrepreneurial itch and wanted to do something a little more uh, on my own and didn't know what that looked like. Um, but it was about seven years ago that I left a public company to step in as uh, president of Shelf Genie Franchise System, which of course is a private company, and had the opportunity on a daily basis to support our owners across North America. And it really was an eye-opening, pivotal experience for me and where I fell in love with franchising. I just saw firsthand how you know, it was a better path to business ownership for all different types of backgrounds. And so long story short, ended up partnering with the founder of Shelf Genie. We spun off, we've invested in franchises ourselves. So um, you know, similar to you, Bruce, I've been on both sides of the table, franchisor and franchisee. And you know, currently I'm invested in quite a few uh, different franchises myself, you know, with different business partners. Um, yeah, but we've got good people running them for us and it allows me to spend close to 90 to 95% of my time helping others do the same. And so, uh, you know, entered into the consulting side about four years ago, and it's it, we've just been able to help so many. You know, we actually, I've been very blessed to help more get into business ownership over the last two to three years than anyone else in the country. And I, I think part of that is, you know, understanding their backstory and then what it is that they're seeking after. And, you know, I'll quickly get get, get the question out there about why not food and, you know, First of all, I'll say that I'm very thankful for those that do get into the food space. We certainly need them. Um, but my humble belief is that for most people, there's an easier path to, to, to making money. And you know, that may require less capital, maybe a smaller team, less operating hours, uh, less inventory to your point, Bruce. Um, you know, and maybe is a little less at the whim of the consumer from a trend or fad standpoint, you know, and, and we'll touch on this, but you know. My, my thesis is, and I continue to see it play out, that, that the boring, kind of non-sexy, understandable cash flow in businesses, that, that, that's what people want. So on that note, as you're talking about non-food and you're talking about the boring, non-sexy things that are not at the whim of the consumer, what is a good franchise from a, a perspective of what type of industries are good to in, invest or start? and become a franchisee. Yeah. You know, over the last couple of years, I'd say nearly half of our placements have been in what I would call the home and property services space. And that could be everything from insulation to gutters, to dumpsters, to concrete paving. Um, I just invested in one in Minneapolis a few days ago. It's a, you know, they, they, they work with parking lots and they do the line striping, they fix cracks, you know, it's a needed B2B recurring revenue type business. Um, so it's all these different niches uh, out there, um, which I'm happy to go further into, but um, you know, it's businesses oftentimes don't require a physical location, at least not one that's customer facing. And you, you're able to scale the business, scale your team over time with a lot of variable cost versus fixed cost. Uh, so that's been a huge area. Um, certainly health and wellness is top of mind for a lot, uh, for many different reasons. I'd say, you know, within that, you know, the fitness sector is a little bit crowded today. We're not doing as much in fitness, but uh, though there are a few that we like out there, but health and wellness overall, 
Um, you know, and then, I mean, we're still doing a lot of oil changes, you know, again, boring businesses that aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And, you know, a lot of our clients say, Hey, you know, what kind of business do I want to be positioned in if the, if the economy were to go downhill? And, and we've all been talking about a recession for probably a decade now and say the economy actually does soften and we get that you know, most predicted recession in history. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, what I go back to is what are you personally going to continue to spend on regardless of the economy? It's, it's the things you care about your kids, your pets your aging parents, um, your home, your health. And so businesses that operate in these types of industries, again, they're more needs-based in a lot of cases, maybe a little, little less discretionary. Those are the ones that are um, getting a lot of attention. Hmm. That's very wise in terms of just thinking about what space do I want to be in and not necessarily something that you are passionate about, but something that's needed. And I think that can be a huge distinction in any business that you're starting. What do people need? What needs need to be fulfilled? And how can you do that in a powerful way? So, and Bruce, I'm sure you want to add a story about oil changes in there. <laughs> actually, actually not, but uh, I mean, I could, okay. but I don't, I don't want to. Uh, okay. one, of the th- one of the things, John, um, so I see um, cleaning services to be business to business cleaning services to be very um, fruitful. Mm-hmm. And then, um, even though I said, you know, maybe not inventory, but as long as you can keep that inventory to maybe a few items, such as, um, tire replacement, I've always thought tire replacement is one of those things is recession proof, as you talked about, um, lower, um, as far as the labor to labor can be trained very easily for that. And, um, even though there's a lot of inventory, it's basically just one item and you can actually flip that very, very quickly. And it's, it's very easy. So do you have things um, like in uh, tire um, franchises and, and what does it take to get into something like that? Let's start, let's start talking about capital requirements and working, working capital, which I think is a a big topic we ought to talk about uh, going forward. So can you, can you comment a few of specifics like that? Absolutely. No. And we certainly work with tire uh, replacement companies. I and mean, we've got a few of those. Um, we work with about 600 different franchise companies out there. And, uh, you know, part of IFPG, which is the largest brokerage in North America, we're all, you know, we work with all the different development groups, always adding new brands, you know, that have kind of passed our vetting filters. Um, you know, from a capital standpoint, uh, and I'd say most of our businesses don't require heavy inventory. You know, oftentimes it's just a time ordering maybe for a, but, you know, there are some. I'm actually in the process of investing in a couple locations down in Miami um, in a custom orthotics and insole and company that also carries some shoes. But these are shoes that aren't going out of style. They kind of meet that avatar, uh, you know, persona of uh, you know the client, and you know they're, they're somewhat evergreen. So you have less inventory issues. They were spoilage or you know some of those things. Um, as far as capital goes. I mean, we'll do laundromats. We'll do some big, I mean, even the tire replacement, you know, those are big brick and mortar, large square footprint, uh, you know, build outs. Um, A lot of our placements, though, I'd say close to two thirds, maybe even three quarters would be, you know, probably from an all in investment where you look at the franchise fee, startup cost and working capital for a few months um, built into that range. You know, probably in the 150 to 350 range quite a few opportunities falling into that. And sometimes that could even be multiple locations. You know, in most cases, those are more service-based businesses. They're not big brick and mortar presences. Um, you know, if you're looking at a, a retail-based business, you know, quite a few options kind of in the 250 to 500 range. And I know that's a pretty wide range. Um, 
you know, franchisors do want to make sure that you're in a position to buy a business. And so, you know, they do look at, you know, what is your net worth? What is your liquid capital? They want to make sure that you're not living paycheck to paycheck out of the gate. Um, yeah, but oftentimes those could be, you know, 250 in net worth or 500 in net worth, which, you know, most of your listeners would, would certainly qualify for. Um, you know, what's really interesting, and I've kind of coined the term franchising as an asset class. Mm-hmm. You know, I think right now as people look across and, you know, they, they're using the Infinity banking and trying to figure out where to where to essentially place place their uh, cash and, and we are seeing record levels of cash on the sidelines it, it, as well. But right now, you know, stock markets all over, interest rates are high. You know, only so many good real estate deals really in, in most markets, and so they're saying, what else is there outside of crypto and you know, maybe a little bit of gold? And a lot of them are turning to business ownership um, through franchising, and um, you know, probably two thirds of our clients are you know, what we would call semi-absentee or semi-passive where they put a manager in place and they kind of co-manage that manager with the franchisor. You know, it still comes down to having a good manager, you know, a good person, you know, running <laughs> running the vehicle for you, but it is very doable. And I can cite case study after case study of how that's done. Um, so going off a little bit off the question there, but just wanted to mention that, um, yeah, we are seeing a lot of people putting their money to work in franchising and really in business ownership because it's not just cash flow. And the exit potential, you're also able to write off expenses that you couldn't as a W two. There's a lot of tax plays mm-hmm. with that, whether it be paying your kids and you know diverting that money into a Roth IRA. You know that's something I do with my kids, um, or other plays that that you couldn't as a W two. Yeah, that, that's something we talk about all the time. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, what's interesting is I, I've I've said this to our listeners on many many occasions and I'm an investment advisor also um, and people fall in love with the they think the way that we build um, our net worth the most common way people think it is, is you do it through the stock market and that is there's a variety of reasons for that there's lobbying reasons there there's uh, the people that have uh, are spending a lot of money to get you to do that and I always tell a person, you know, that's a, a business owners get it. And if you're trying to become a franchise, e, you're a business owner. And I say people all the time that are thinking about this. I said, well, if, you know, if we, if you had two hundred thousand dollars and you wanted to put it into the stock market, what would you expect to get as a rate of return? And without fail, without a, with only a couple exceptions, people are going to say anywhere between seven and ten percent. Then when I say to them, well. Uh, to a true business owner that knows, I said, if you, if I all of a sudden injected $200,000 into your business, what kind of rate of return would you expect out of that? And they would say anywhere between 20 and 30%. And so right then, if people really would step back and think about what they just said, they would, they would absolutely know that deploying cash into a cash flowing business, not to even mention the tax advantages that you, you talked about is actually a way to actually improve your net worth through income rather than appreciation. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And yeah, and you're building that exit potential too. There was, there was a study I, I like to cite that was done recently where they looked at the exits of franchise businesses and non-franchise and comparable industries. And they analyzed 2000 transactions over a 10 year period. Um, school down in Florida was the one that put the study together. And what they found was the franchise businesses at the time of exit uh, actually sell for about one and a half times non-franchised. And so really eye-opening to see the value of a potential resale buyer that they put in the franchise where they step in day one and 
yeah, they may have a team, they may have a presence in the market, but they also have that franchise on the sideline. And you know, that's one of the things I personally love about franchising. Um, and, and we work with a lot of existing business owners. And some of them are too entrepreneurial. They want to put their thumbprints all over and I have to tell them franchising is not right for you. Um, but for many of them, they say, hey, I've been there, done that for my next rodeo, would love to to be cliche on you to start on third base, you know, you've got the franchisor, you know, that's coaching you, you've got, you know, not every franchisor is created equal. That's why we help our clients identify the right ones, but you've got a franchisor, you've got the playbook, you've got other franchisees that are living the same thing day in, day out, exchanging best practices. Um, You know, and and you kind of know that path to profitability from day one versus having to guess that, you know, this is going to be profitable. And when you look at the sheer stats, 92% of franchises are still in business after five years, which, just a tick higher than a startups, you might say. Mm-hmm. Just a little, just a little. So for somebody who wa- likes that idea that you're mentioning, this could be a little more passive than full business ownership where you are starting from the ground up, you're creating every single system in the business. Talk a little bit about what that could look like. I know you touched on it, but I want you to go a little deeper. Uh Maybe somebody is saying, I would like to be the one to put up the capital to start a franchisee, to start a franchise. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure of the terminology, but they're going to start the, the small shop that there already exists, the franchise company. So, but they they don't know how to do the thing. Maybe they're, they're not the one who has experience laying the concrete or um, doing the gutters or installing. And obviously they can hire. I'm sure that there's hiring practices as well and and a whole um, system set up to make sure that you hire the right people to fill the right spots. But can you just talk about that that passive capability that franchising has? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. And that's really the million dollar question. So let's let's camp out on that for a minute. So there are a few different ownership styles uh, in franchising. And, you know, back to your point, Bruce, on, you know, the returns that you can get through business ownership. I mean, Part of that is, I mean, there's a premium to that return and that you're also putting in time. I mean, this is not, in most cases, a truly passive, you know, like investing in the stock market. So, you know, it's every, everybody has to weigh kind of what's going on in their personal life and how much bandwidth they have. That being said, there's three ownership styles. One is called, you know, the, the owner operator. And that's where, hey, I'm a corporate guy. I'm ready to go leave and go start a business. And I'd say most of our clients that do go down that path have the intention that over time, they'll put a manager in place and then they'll move on to their next thing. A lot of our clients come back and buy additional franchises. You know, In the years ahead, we just see that playing out. Um, the second ownership style, which again, I'd say about two thirds of our clients opt for is what I would call semi-passive or semi-absentee. Sometimes you'll hear it called an executive model as well. And what that means is that, um, and most of the franchises we work with allow for that, but you know, you're putting a strong manager in place to run the day-to-day operations. And, you know, you're still coaching that franchisee. The buck still stops with you. I don't want to sugarcoat it. But you've got that franchisor, and assuming it's a good franchisor, on the sidelines that's partnering with you and kind of co-managing the, the, the manager to a degree. The manager can go to their team with the technical questions. You know, they can use them as a resource. The franchisor is going to keep them marching in the right direction. Again, a good one. Um, and so it takes some of the burden off of you. And, you know, we work with lawyers and a whole lot of doctors. And yeah, they, they don't want to leave their high paying W2 job, but they want to get exposure to business ownership. And so every one of them you know, goes through this path and says, well, does it make sense to hire a manager? Sometimes it's their brother-in-law that they trust that can go run the business. In some cases, they have to hire for it. Some people get a little nervous around that, understandably, but, but quite a few move forward. And um, the third ownership style, and this is kind of the holy grail, and I wish we saw it more often, there's just not enough opportunities yet, but I'm hoping that it grows, 
there's four businesses out there that I know of, you know, that, that we've chosen to work with that offer a truly passive investor model. And, you know, that's, you know, where the franchisor will actually run the business for you. Mm-hmm. And so when I talked about the one down in Miami that I'm investing in, that's a passive model where I will literally get on a call. Now I'll go down there and do some site selection, you know, with the real estate team. I'm going to be the one signing the lease. I'm going to be signing the franchise agreement. Ultimately, it's my checking account. I'm funding the business, but the franchisor will run it as if it's one of their corporate locations. And they'll report back to me once or twice a month where we'll get on the phone, we'll review key performance indicators, KPIs, we'll talk strategy, I'll make decisions that need to be made. But they're going to be hiring the manager, they're going to be um, you know, overseeing the team, handling the whole thing. And so um, there, we've had clients buy into several. There's two in the pet space, one in the health and wellness space, there's one in the um, in the uh, fifty-three billion dollar insulation market, <laughs> talk about a fragmented market where you can probably use a couple of big brands. Um, and so these have been wildly popular. Um, you know, again, I'd love to see more brands opt for that, but only if they've got the infrastructure in place to be able to support that. So um, that would be the third kind of holy grail, very rare option. So it seems to me that from um, perusing uh, social media that. And I don't think, well, this was my question. Has anybody come up with an e-commerce franchise? Because those seem to be more where you're, you're seeing people say, I will be, build an e-commerce um, platform for you. Has anybody come up with an e-commerce franchise yet that you know of? Yeah, not a pure play. I'd say that's kind of an add-on where, it, and part of that is when you think about franchising, I mean, for the franchise or it has to make sense to franchise. I mean, if you're e-commerce and you've got a central fulfillment, let's say, do you really need owners all across North America? In some cases, maybe so, but it, not as often. So oftentimes, you know, as a franchise or you're thinking about scaling your business that way, you know, there are a few reasons why you would do it. One, you can have local presence in the market fairly quickly. I mean, some of these businesses, you know, we had one go from five locations to 300 locations in about two to three years. I mean, there is that scalable uh, possibility using other people's money, essentially the franchisees, but they also have skin in the game. You always want your employees acting as owners. Well, in this case, they actually are owners. And so, you know, they, they, you know they're they more incentivized and they know their local markets. So there's a lot of wins kind of, you know, I always say, but on the flip side, as a franchisor, you're going to wake up one day and realize you've got kids all across the country that have expectations of you. You know, you've got to be ready and staffed up for that. Um, you know, and Bruce, you can probably attest to that. You don't want you don't want some upset franchisees coming back at you. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a long answer to your question, Bruce. I, I'd say not a pure play e-commerce one that I've seen, but there are a few out there. that are more B2B kind of consulting type businesses. Maybe it's cost reduction or maybe it's business coaching. We, we've had clients you know, placed in both of those types of businesses where maybe they're not territory restricted and they can operate, you know, across the U.S. and oftentimes, you know, the, the, it can be an e-commerce type component because that's where you're generating most of your leads and, and such. But um, I'd say, especially like on the inventory side, not not a product-based e-commerce play. So I, as, as I had experience in the Amco transmission that's been around for 70 or 80 years, um, unfortunately, they were actually sold and they were going through a transition. And I think that was part of the, how poorly they performed as a franchisor. To give you an example, um, we had 12 people in our uh, class that uh, went through the two-week training, so on and so forth. And this is in the early 2000s. And um, 
only one of us um, actually decided to stay in the business. Uh, I made it five years, um, got out of it for a variety of reasons, not just because of low performance, but also because uh, I was actually moving uh, out of state again. But only one of us actually made it past five years. So everybody else uh, got out of the business for a variety of reasons. Very poor communication between the franchisee and the franchisor. A lot of promises were made, you know, as far as a regional manager helping hiring, so on and so forth. It did not happen. So then when I invested in um, another franchise, which is a startup franchise, one of the reasons that they were excited that I was doing this was not only did I have, so I was almost like teaching them about franchising. And then my wife, with the fr- being a franchisor for the UPS store, uh, they were also hoping to, to gain, um, but they were way in over their heads. And so I'm bringing all that background to ask you, what are the red flags that you look for that a franchisor does or does not do? Yeah. You know, number one to me, you know, and we work with a lot of emerging brands as well. And, you know, they've obviously got to have the technical resource, you know, for the, you know, and knowledge for the industry. But a big thing to me, having been a franchisor myself is because this is essentially your business partner. I want to see a track record on that leadership team of supporting successful franchisees. And maybe it's an emerging brand. They don't, they haven't done it there yet, but they've done it in comparable industries. You know, I think of one that I had a drink with a guy last night, a client of mine that's here in Atlanta that just bought into a, a business. And, you know, it's a newer business. They've got a handful of franchise owners. He liked the fact that he could get, you know, hands-on support. You know, he's one of the first, you know, 15 owners. You know, he's also getting choice territory here in the Atlanta market. Um, but one of the big criteria to me was the fact that the president of that company was also the COO of one of the fastest growing franchises in America the last couple of years. He came mm-hmm. over, brought that expertise. So I, I don't want to see just technical expertise. I want to see a track record in their background of having support franchise owners because that ultimately it starts with the top and it starts with the people. So that's a big one. Um, Bruce, also, I'd say on the financial side, you know, I want to see a lot of meat on the bone. Um, and I always tell our clients, hey, let's go in conservative with, with our assumptions, even if that's a system average. And frankly, I think most of our clients would outperform the system average. We still go in and say, what if we only do two thirds as well or half as well? Mm. Will this still be an attractive return on investment? Um, so those are two big pieces. I also want to see competitive advantage within the industry. You know, there's an industry, uh, the mosquito industry. We chose not to place clients there uh, just because it's, you've already seen big brands come in. And there's very little differentiation between offerings. It's really competing on price. And I just, again, I think there are easier ways to make money and to, to make healthy margins. So, you know, those would be a few, um, a few of the main criteria. So there's so many more questions that we would love to pack in. So um, especially in non-food franchising, who is buying? Who, why are they buying? What are they buying? And can you then also talk about why real estate investors might be looking at this as a good opportunity for them if if maybe they're experienced already in real estate. Yeah. You know, as I mentioned, a lot of doctors, you know, attorneys, other high income individuals, a lot of business owners. And some currently own a franchise. I mean, Bruce went around for a second ride there, you know, but a lot of times they're non-franchised. And you know, I'm a member of the entrepreneurs organization EO. And so I get a lot of people reaching out, you know, wanting to kind of build out that investment portfolio. And you know, again, I, I'm happy to go into case studies of clients of ours that have built out a portfolio of businesses. Oftentimes, some franchise, some non-franchise, but the ones that are non-franchise benefit from those that are franchised because they're learning different you know, best practices mm-hmm. in standing up a business and how to support it that they could uh, apply to their other companies. Um, so as far as backgrounds go, I mean, we're 
we're doing placements all around the country. I mean, places are not getting positive news headlines right now. I mean, we've done multiple deals in New York and California this year, Washington, Chicago. You know, you don't see a lot of positive headlines, but I'm encouraged to see the economic activity on the ground in spite of interest rates and the Fed and everything else going on. Um, you know, I'd say, I mean, we've had clients as young as 24 and our 24 year old was incredibly successful out of the gate. Um, but I'd say most people are in their mid thirties to, you know, probably early sixties, you know, with quite a few kind of in that forties to fifties range. Um, I, I just have conversation after conversation every day of, Hey, you know, I, I'm tired of building someone else's empire. I'm ready to build my own. You know, I've been thinking about this for a while, didn't know where to start. And, you know, 90% of them that end up working with us end up going into something that was never on their radar and field they never considered. Mm. And that's what's so much fun because oftentimes you don't know what you're looking for until it's right there in front of you. Um, so we've set up a process where it's entirely free to work with us. We're funded by the brands, very much like an executive search type model. You know, if someone goes directly to the brand or goes through us, they pay the same franchise fee. It's a very clean model. And we take them through a very uh, abbreviated process, very streamlined because of the executive caliber of client that we work with, you know, they want to see the opportunities. They don't want to you know, sit on the sidelines and pontificate about types of opportunities. They just want to see them and they want to see a good variety of their, that are available in their market. So we'll take them through typically around 10 or 12 opportunities that we see based on everything else that we're seeing in the market, based on those criteria I laid out, based on what they've shared with us about their situation. You know, here are the top ones for consideration. Let's go have a conversation with the top three or four. And so oftentimes that one that was number four in their mind pops up to number one, because once mm -hmm. you have a conversation, that's where the magic starts happening. And something gets brought up on the call that I didn't do a good job of articulating, they hadn't thought about. Um, and, and so it's a lot of fun to just kind of see the light bulb go on for them. That's excellent. And um, what kind of returns are franchisees able to expect or think about or anticipate as they even consider the non-food franchising space? Yeah, you know, it, and of course, it, the, it, it depends. And it, it depends on what the payback period is and everything else. You know, if it's retail or if it's you know more service spaces, I define it. Um, I'll just use that. I mentioned gutters earlier. Um, we had nine clients placed in gutters last year from, again, attorneys. We had multiple doctors. We had corporate executives. We had existing business owners. So good mix. I, I think it, that's a good one to identify. I will say the returns on this one are higher than, than some. Um, so, you know, but as an example, all in investment, you're right around 200 to 225. And that would be for two territories defined by population, usually like 300,000 in population. Um, the average franchisee in their system, they do a great job of breaking this out in their item 19 of their FDD. Their average franchisee is doing 1.7 million in revenue. The year prior, they were doing 1.2. So I love seeing that comp system-wide growth uh, on a per location basis, but 1.7, and they're doing that at a 28% bottom line EBITDA. Mm -hmm. And so oh, that's... Wow. That's real money. You're talking, you know, half a million, call it five hundred thousand around numbers. That's on an initial investment of two hundred thousand. Now, not everyone's going to get off to that fast of a start. You know, it may be year three or year four that they achieve that, but you can get off that fast of a start. They've had franchisees do as much as two million in the first year. You know, not a large number of them, but they have had that. They've had some do a million, or and so there's that potential there. And it comes down to having a good manager in a good area, but um, you know, that's one that, that, you know, partly none of my clients said, Hey, we're passionate about gutters, but they did recognize, Hey, it's a $6 billion industry, highly fragmented. If we've got a franchisor that's driving the marketing for us, 
and answering our phones. They have an in-house call center, which is very helpful. Um, and they've got all the technology. They're bringing a white-collar approach to a blue-collar industry that's more of a needs-based industry. And you know, it's mainly gutter installs. It's not as much gutter cleaning. Um, that'd be a whole lot of jobs, <laughs> gutter cleaning <laughs> jobs to get to those numbers. Um, yeah, but that's an example that, again, when you look at a return like that, let's haircut it and say you do, let's say you only do one-third as well as their average. That's still a great return. And you have the exit potential and potential, and you've got the tax benefits. So um, again, not everyone is quite that attractive, but that shows you the potential of some of these. So that and that's fantastic. Thank you for kind of walking through those numbers. So say somebody is now they're considering getting into the franchising space. What is that exit opportunity? Who who is purchasing the franchise location if they say, hey, look, I do want to get out? And what does that look like in terms of their profitability? Yeah. And John, and John, if you don't mind, let me, can I actually, I've been wanting to piggyback on that question too. Yep. One of the things that we talk about is exit strategies or succession plans. And if you can build a life and business you love, which is one of our taglines, and you're able to do it where you don't have to be in that business on a day-to-day situation, your exit potential becomes even greater because it opens up your sale to a lot more people because they know they don't have to be the the person, the owner operator in there every single stinking day. So can you also tie that into your, your answer? Yeah. So I think there are three components to the question. So from an exit standpoint, yeah, I think the logical first you know place you would look to, to sell the business is to another franchisee. Um, you know, I, one of the franchises I own is called the driveway company. And uh, here in Atlanta, we, recently in the past year bought out two other franchise locations. So it gave them an exit, but it also allowed us to, um, you know, two different franchisees, but also allowed us to expand our footprint. So that's a logical first step. Second one I'd say is go to the franchisor and say, hey, in the past five years that we've been running the business, you've surely had a lot of people reach out and show interest in this business for this area. You know, and hopefully they still have records of those people. I mean, that's a natural lead list for you to pursue. Um, I'd say putting it out there on a website like Biz Buy Sell that just gets a ton of eyeballs, you know, is a good way to go. Um, you, you certainly can use a broker, you know, or a consultant like myself on the resale, but you know, that that is going to you know eat into the profit a little bit. So I'd say try those other options first. Um, as far as the exit multiple or potential goes, you know, in the gutter example or property services, which I, I'll be candid, you know, from an exit standpoint, I have a little more experience on the prop on the property services side firsthand. Um, I'd say, you know, oftentimes you're looking at a multiple on sales of 0.75 to 1.25, which would translate to like a three to five EBITDA. And I'd say kind of to your question, Bruce, you know, some of the factors that dictate where you are in that range in, in that example would be, yeah, if you've set it up so that you're not the owner operator, that's much more attractive to a much larger group of investors. Um, it, you know, certainly how much you've done in marketing over time, you know, what the brand awareness is like, you know, do you have positive reviews on Google or are they negative reviews? You know, you want positive brand awareness. Um, I think the uh, the size of the business also is a component. I think the larger you make it, um, you also get a higher multiple oftentimes. It's just uh, more attractive. You know, and then is it a recurring revenue type business? You know, if you have a customer base that you can continually tap into, that's a huge asset of the business uh, versus having a, you know, one ticket, you know, mm-hmm. now, now there are plenty of great opportunities that are high ticket, you know, one-time sales. But if it's recurring, I'd say you get a multiple on that. And you mentioned Bruce earlier, the corporate cleaning and, you know, I'm, 
we had a client in Boston sign for one yesterday that's commercial cleaning. And one of the beautiful things about this business is not only the recurring revenue nature of it, and he, and he bought into a new territory, um, but the fact that day one, he's going to have national accounts that he can step into and say, hey, we're serving all of your other locations, you know, and uh, you know, most of their franchisees and good local markets are, are supporting that. So, you know, not every franchise system has national accounts, but, you know, the, the parking lot one that I mentioned in Minneapolis you know, that's one that, you know, they're fairly new to the U.S. They expanded from Canada last year, but they've already brought on probably 70 franchise owners across the country. They're now at a place where they can start building out a national account program because they've got the coverage. Um, so that's kind of one of their big initiatives. They built out a team internally to now go after national accounts. They'll support us as the franchisees. So two big questions. If somebody is looking at this saying, I'm interested I want to find out more information. I would like to pursue this as an opportunity. How do they do that with you or how do they step into getting started in that space? Yeah, certainly. I, I'd say, you know, you do some research online, do some Googling, but what you're going to find is every brand's putting forward their marketing message and their best foot forward. So, you know, it's important to understand what's going on behind the scenes. And that's where, again, it's entirely free to work with us. Um, sometimes we're able to even leverage our relationships with these franchisors for our clients. Um, yeah, but we'd love to engage. I'd say is a very simple step. Come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com, F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com. Uh, sign up for our monthly newsletter. We put out some great content. And then uh, I'll have my assistant also for all of your listeners reach out and and offer up a digital copy of our book, whether it be audio or, or PDF. Um, you know, if you'd like to buy the book, Non-Food Franchising Online on Amazon, all profits go to a great nonprofit that we support. So that's certainly an option as well um, that we encourage. But then you know, if you'd like to take a next step and uh, you know get on a call, I'd be happy to you know, chat with any of your listeners and kind of Help, help them decide if it makes sense to kind of go down this path and start the exploration process. Entirely no commitment. Um, but, you know, we've been able to help so many out there the last couple of years and we'd love to do the same for your listeners. That's excellent. So go to franbridgeconsulting.com. And let me make sure I'm getting it right. Is it net? Dot com. Dot com. I'm sorry. Franbridgeconsulting.com. And that's where everything is for you to get started if you're interested in this opportunity and experience of stepping into franchising, especially the non-food franchising space. And John is the person to really be able to answer your questions and lead you through that customer journey of becoming an owner of a non-food franchise. So how do they get the book? I'm, I wasn't clear on that. How do you want them to? Yeah, come out to our website and we'll have a pop-up that you know it offers up Great. the book and um, you know, we'll respond within a day or two with access instructions for downloading that book. Um, and again, or Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any book book retailer out there, and all profits go to Hope International. It's a great nonprofit that we support, and uh, mm. that's another option. That's excellent, and that is called non food franchising. And if you're looking up John's name, is J O N Austinson O S T E N S E N S O N. Oh, that's all. Sorry. Yeah, connect on LinkedIn. We 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 put out a lot of content on LinkedIn as well. That's kind of our preferred platforms. Excellent. Well, so John, I, this has been really helpful. Go ahead, Bruce. I was just going to say for all our listeners, if you're looking to deploy some of your cash value in your life insurance policies, this would be an excellent way. We always talk about looking for opportunities. We also, if you recall, we, we want you to be patient looking for these opportunities because we want you to be able to pay your loans back and then rinse and repeat and do it again. So this is a way to deploy your cash value, get some attractive returns, you can actually pay yourself back 
the, the advantage of using your cash value is that you pay it back on your terms and you control the entire process. This is also a way to build your generational wealth because the, you're, going to have, um, you're going to have profits from the sale that can also be then that you have to store those profits somewhere. And we would encourage you then to store it into your, your cash value, your whole life insurance. And then the final thing is, even though, as John said, most of these um, are actually very, very profitable and don't miss too often, the fact of the matter is some of them do miss. If you do miss with your cash value, because you have a death benefit, you can refill up the family legacy bank with the death benefit upon your demise, which you know a lot of us, we believe, uh, uh, we know we're going to die, but we don't really believe it. But it is, it is a way to protect generational um, wealth through any kind of missteps. And some of them, John, I think you would agree, you can do, in franchising, you can do everything right, be with the right person, but a situation comes about in the economy that no matter what you did, you can't overcome it and you could lose a portion of all or all of your investment. Well, this is a way to kind of protect that uh, way for generational wealth if you use your cash value uh, in your infinite banking policies. So this is another uh, resource we're bringing our listeners and hopefully you'll go to John's um, website and look into this because both Rachel and I believe this is a really a good way for you to deploy your cash value. Yes, absolutely. So thank you for listening. Thank you for joining in the show today. And if you are catching the replay of this, which many of our audience and listeners do as well, you might be on YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, you can put in your comments to the video or beneath the video, you can ask your questions. Um, don't ask us about franchising, but go ahead and go over to FranBridge. Con Let me make sure I'm getting it correct here. FranBridgeConsulting.com and get your questions about franchising there, but let us know your thoughts about franchising. And if you have questions about infinite banking or cash value life insurance, or just optimizing your financial life so that you're in a position of maximum control so that you can take advantage of opportunities like this, go ahead and reach out to us at themoneyadvantage.com. You can email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com, or you can go straight to our website and book a call if you're ready to get started with thinking, rethinking your financial economy personally. With that, we're going to go ahead and close. And John, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. It was really eye-opening, extremely insightful. And just thank you for sharing your expertise and wisdom. Absolutely, Rachel. Enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. In closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. 
The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.